0: It's Jennifer Diane Gostin, and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? My guest today was born in Venezuela, adopted by French parents and raised in the United States. Her name is Sophie P. Jupia, Posey. Her childhood and teenage years were full of amazing adventures such as raising raccoons, learning dual curriculums at the same time, and traveling extensively throughout the U.S. and France. She was exposed to the arts early on, which resulted in her falling in love with writing and music. However, those years were full of pain from psychological and physical abuse. Sophie currently resides in France, and in this episode, she will share part of her relinquishment, adoption, reunion with biological family members, and her many artistic talents. She will read a beautiful piece that I'm excited for you to hear in her voice. When Sophie reached out to me via email this year, it quickly turned into a wonderful Zoom meeting. I felt her warmth and kindness from one adoptee to another, though we are of different generations. The time difference of her being seven hours ahead of me didn't stop us from connecting for you to get the opportunity to hear from her. You gotta love technology when that happens. Sophie is a talented singer-songwriter who majored in English with honors at Rollins College in 2011, as well as minors in both music and creative writing. She started publishing short stories and her orchestral and piano pieces in the literary magazines while she was still in college. She is now an indie author publishing novels and novellas in the fantasy and science fiction genres mainly. Also some poetry and kid lit. She is also an indie composer with three albums in the neoclassical and jazz genres under her belt. She has also scored the soundtracks for a few short films. Wow, that's all so impressive. Sophie has always been inquisitive about her birth story and is on a fast track to getting more answers since doing DNA testing. Wait until you hear about the first connection she made with an extended Venezuelan family member after receiving her DNA results. Allow me the pleasure of introducing you to a member of the younger generation of adult adoptees who is absolutely not the least bit interested in being silent any longer about what it means to be an adoptee, one who didn't have a lucky childhood at the hands of her adopters. Fortunately, what she has been able to do is channel her pain through music, writing, being creative, and teaching her students the beauty of the arts. Sophie, I get to see your face. We're on Zoom. That's just so exciting when I get to do that because most guests, it's just, you know, audio on the phone. But you're way in France. It's like a seven hour difference, right?
1: I know. Yes, it is. (laughs) is. Or or five in the afternoon here.
0: Right. And it's uh, a little after 10 a.m. where I am. And yeah, I'm happy that we're able to do this together and I understand that this is the first time that you will be publicly sharing your relinquishment and adoption journey, is that right?
1: Yeah, in full full detail like I make allusions here and there in my in my like writings or posts, but not like this.
0: <laughs> yeah, so I am deeply honored for you to trust me with your story here for my podcast because there are a lot of adoptees that I am in contact with that have never really been on a podcast. They have never really shared to this degree, what happened to them. So I I just feel like it's a privilege for you to trust me. So thank you for that. Well, of
1: course, of course.
0: (laughs) So I know you were born in Venezuela. I love saying that Venezuela, It just, (laughs) it rolls off my tongue. And I, I like that. And you were adopted by French parents. You yeah, know, that much I know. And as I get to know you better, I think you have really endured a lot as an adoptee and turned much of your pain into purpose because I know you're so creative. You're a writer, you're a singer, a songwriter, a music teacher. Like, And I love music and I love the arts. And so I feel like you've come a long way For my audience, I'm happy for you to share a part of your relinquishment and adoption journey from wherever you want to start.
1: Okay. Sounds good. I guess in that context, like I mentioned in my bio, I was exposed early on to music. My parents bought like tons of classical music CDs, some jazz. They had like these audio books and stuff about composers and their lives and of course their um, their magnet. Um, Opuses, of course, and same with writing. I got exposed to French and English literature equally. I got read to every night and stuff. So it kind of, it it connected with me and and it made me dream. I was like, oh, one day I'm gonna make my own music. I'm going to create my own books and stuff. And that just stayed and has stayed up to, to this day, obviously. But at the time it was more like, you know, I just loved expressing myself through those mediums, but it was nothing more than like just playfulness. As I got older and stuff, I got more crucial to, to surviving. Pass-forwarding a little bit. Yeah, I learned about my adoption. I mean, physically, I kind of looked like my adopted dad. So people were always like, Oh, you know, you look so much like your dad and stuff. And I thought it was kind of a weird comment to make, but I didn't really think much about it. And I, and I could tell it just annoyed my adopted mom so much when people would say that. And I always wondered why. But it wasn't until I was like in fifth grade, end of fifth grade, that some kids were and I were in the bus talking about all kinds of weird things <laughs> and about death and stuff like that but we were also talking about where we were born and so everybody had a story to say about oh I was born at home or most were born in a hospital or whatever and they all turned to me and were like where were you born and I said uh <laughs> I don't know I have, I have no idea actually so when I came home that, that day I told my mom about the bus episode and I'm like hey so uh, where was I born and she just got this very serious look on her face, and I was just like, okay, what's going on? So she told me to sit down uh, in the living room, and she started saying, oh, actually, I have something to tell you, and it's difficult to talk about, and whatever, but you're you're, you're adopted. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> and at the time, you know, when I was growing up and stuff, I yeah, heard about adoptions and stuff, but it wasn't talked about a lot at all, so I was kind of shocked. She's like, yeah, we were born. we were born in Venezuela, like your passport says and stuff, but it was amazing because the way she, she talked about it was very detailed in some aspects and incredibly vague in others, but I didn't realize that at the time. But she was like, yeah, you were born in Venezuela. Your, your birth parents like had you or whatever. You were born premature. Uh, they took you to the hospital. and Then somewhere in the middle, they left or something and they died. And I was like, wait, we died from what? So she said they died in some mudslide or something. They both died and that, that was it. And Then I was sent to a, the orphanage or whatever. So I said, okay, well, I remember my, my first reaction was like, just so much sorrow. And I was like, well, do you have like names or pictures or, or something? And my mom was like, nope, there's absolutely nothing. And of course, being a kid at the time, I just accepted it. Oh, I'm like, okay, well, there's nothing. That's really too bad. So she was like, well, you know, a couple years later, um, after being in the orphanage, um, her and my dad came, picked me out of all the other kids or whatever, I think I recall her saying that the, the process took way longer than she wanted, but whatever, it went through. And so he adopted me, apparently was very sickly at the time or whatever, nursed me back to health. And then within a couple years after that, they moved from Venezuela to Florida, the United States for his job. So that's in a nutshell, the, the, the story that I got. And she went on and on about how all the, the babies that were there were in really, really poor health and sickly. And you know, most came from like really poor families and, and, and all that. And that she felt great because after all this time trying to have kids and she had like eight miscarriages or something like that,
0: oh, wow. um,
1: she was able to, yeah, pretty intense. She was able to, to pick a child of her own and, and, and have me, had me. <laughs> um, so yeah, very detailed in some aspects and not at all in others, but I took it.
0: <laughs> yes. And, and when we talked before now, and you explain the psychological and physical abuse that you endured, primarily at her hands, right? Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about how you got through that?
1: Sure, sure. So cycling back a little bit to the writing and music I mentioned earlier, it was around a little, yeah, after fifth grade and stuff, um, I was homeschooled, so I was kind of stuck at home. I mean, I was stuck at home all day long uh, with her because she was a stay-at-home mom. She she didn't learn her language. She didn't have a car, so she, she was stuck at home uh, while my dad worked. She did my French schooling with me while I did my American schooling by myself because my dad had time. And around that time, she got diagnosed with breast cancer, like stage two or something, barely. And she flipped out, freaked out, which, you know, is understandable and stuff. But starting from there, she started really, like, Losing it, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she'd always been prone to like sudden mood swings and, and just sudden rages that would last for too long hours. So, even as a kid, I learned okay, I better not say this is gonna make her flip out. I better, you know, not ask her this. I know it's gonna get her bad. Okay, I'll be quiet, you know. Uh, but it really like got worse around 11 years old. She would start like blaming me for like absolutely everything. You know, she was in pain or whatever, or tired or, or in a bad mood. It was all my fault, of course if so I try to help in the house or whatever, I got insulted and stuff because I was inept and useless and inefficient and whatever. And it just got worse and worse the older I got. And then it got like, you know, well, oh, you wear glasses, you you know, you wear glasses to look smart, you know, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, that sort of thing. I was lazy, et cetera, et cetera. So in order to cope with, with worsening like daily criticisms and punishments and rejections and stuff like that, I, uh, really like threw myself into my my writing and my music. I felt like it, it gave me a voice to express myself completely honestly, rest around her and even my dad. But I don't think he understood or saw or didn't want to see uh, a lot of the stuff that was going on. When I was writing and composing, I was able to just be me. And even then, like if I wrote for too long um while she was in the room or composing while she was in the room she'd be like oh my god it's your stuff still you're still working on your stuff I'm so sick and tired of hearing it like just to go do something else you know, act like a kid you're your age you know that sort of thing I was just so hurt so I learned to write at five in the morning when she go to bed or when they go to events and stuff and leave me alone at the house that's when I would compose and I would write for hours and hours just non-stop right <laughs> and it made me happy that, that it helped me like keep keep myself sane and be like, okay, if I can't say what I want, how I feel, I can at least like express it through through writing and music.
0: Mm -hmm. Would you say that her negative behavior towards you started after you learned you were adopted or or prior? Because you said around 11 years old and that's when you learned of being an adoptee, right?
1: Yeah, I got significantly, well, in my eyes, and I might be wrong, (laughs) Uh, In my eyes, it seemed like it got really, really worse around that time. But even before, like, I'd always kind of, even as early as eight or nine, I remember just after certain, like, arguments and disagreements and punishments, I'd sometimes just sit there in my room. Because even then I pondered, like, what did I do wrong? You know, how did I mess this up so bad? You know, I'd get in these logic loops in my head for hours and I'd be like, what did I do? What did I do? And I think something is wrong, like there's something, I don't know what it is, but there's something wrong in, in my family and I couldn't figure out if it was due to me or them or whatever. And I sometimes ask my friends when I was still in public school at the time, like, hey, um, do your parents do this or do your parents do that? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, I guess my parents are kind of strict, but that's, you know, how I justified it at the time. I'm like, okay, they're a little e, but they're just strict, I guess. <laughs>
0: hmm. I've heard many adoptees share that music saved them and writing saved them through the hard times in their adoptive family. I think those two are very powerful tools that many adoptees have utilized to get through some of the worst situations. And so I'm imagining that you would think about your biological family after learning that you're an adopted person. Would you spend time or much time thinking about being, like, searching and being in reunion?
1: Actually, it's weird. I know for a lot of people they do, but I don't know. At the time, I I still felt somewhat, well, not somewhat, I still felt loved and supported. And my mom kept saying, you know, oh, you're, you're adopted, but you're ours. You know, it's like you're, you're our own biological daughter. It doesn't matter, that sort of thing. And it was so, like, so much of that that I kind of didn't think about my birth family. Plus, the fact that she said we were dead, also kind of helped kind of push it aside. But like I said, it really did kind of sadden me at the time. And it's not until actually quite late. But I think part of it may have been because I I sensed that if I were to think too hard about my birth family, it wouldn't have been seen positively at all. Because like, I remember some arguments out of countless arguments we had, mostly on her end. (laughs) I just sit there and she starts screaming at me. Anyway, I remember one time distinctly, like, I don't even know what she was yelling at me about. And I went to my room to cry by myself and stuff. And and she like barged in my room and was like, oh, you know, why are you crying? And it looks like you're praying. And I bet you're praying that, you know, your birth family is still alive and taking care of you. And I was still like, wait, what? (laughs) That was such a a stretch and a jump. What the heck? And it wasn't at all what I was thinking. Right. And she just went on to this whole like tirade about, about how wishing they were alive. And you know what? It was best that they were dead anyway. If you were so Mm. poor, you couldn't have been able to take care of me. And she went on this whole really cruel rant about it he's like you know it's better off that you're with us we saved your life you know you um you wouldn't be here today without us and whatever and she just left and i was just like my head was spinning (laughs) and i was like wow i wasn't even thinking about my birth parents and that's the reaction i get okay right right. all that off i think for many 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 years um and it's not until 2018 when i decided to do a dna test for 23andme but it was kind of like you know throwing a bottle out in the ocean i'm like i'll do my dna test but i don't really expect anything to happen and indeed you know when i got for results i had like lots of very distant fourth and fifth cousins etc whatever And at least i got an ethnicity breakdown like they do mm-hmm. and i was like oh okay i got Venezuelan, Venezuelan, of course wasn't expecting anything different but spanish and portuguese and heck even a bit of, of nigerian africa or whatever so that was already cool i was like at least that kind of I was like, oh, I got some part of my roots. Okay, that's kind of cool. And then it was in, yeah, during COVID 2020, February 2020. I got a message from uh, Thais and she showed up as a second cousin. And that just whoop, <laughs> opened, opened my world. And I was like, wait, wait, that's true. Even if my parents are dead, which I don't really believe now anyway. There's her and all these different cousins and stuff are a part of my 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 tree. And that just that opened up. I guess that part of me that kind of went to sleep mm-hmm. almost years ago. It's been amazing,
0: right? So you connect with this second cousin, right? How did how did that go?
1: It went well. She she saw me first because I wasn't really checking my the platform that often. But she's her what was it her son gave her a kit for Christmas. She did it and then got the results in February. So I was actually on my way back from work from teaching and I get this message from Twenty Three and Me and I'm like, okay, whatever. I almost swiped it away and then I read it. And I saw, hey, I, I, I saw that we're connected. We're second cousins. We, Obviously, we don't know each other and stuff, but you're, you're a fairly close match. And, you know, where are you from? I see you're born in Venezuela. And she had all these questions. but She was such a kind, it was written in such a kind way and accepting way, which, I, you know, I've heard kind of mixed stories when, when, when matches reach out to each other and stuff. But she was just so kind about it. And I immediately responded. I'm like, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> I don't expect this to happen." Right. Um, I nice meet you, everything, and we. I think within a few months, we were emailing and zooming, and she'd introduce me to like everybody in the family that she knew. And so I got to meet them and call them and whatever. We suspect that her grandfather, so my great, my great grandfather, had a lot of uh, dalliances and stuff outside of his marriages. <laughs> I might be a bastard child, as it were, but in no way has has she or any of you of her cousins been like Ew, like Ew, we don't we right don't accept you because you're <laughs> just like ah, oh, you're one of us you look like us right um you sound like us like you're, you're obviously one of us it's definitely been interesting like having people who look like me you know growing up in florida it's all white white people <laughs> And even my own parents, well, not not my dad, but my own mom, would be like, "Oh, your hair is so curly and hard to work with, and oh, you're so brown and this and that." I'm like, "Well, yeah, I was born in Venezuela. What do you expect?" Right,
0: right. <laughs> I was so struck by how welcoming your biological family, your your second cousin, was to you. I think that might speak to the culture, right, in Venezuela. Can you speak yeah. to, to me about, or to all of us listening, about the culture?
1: Sure. So I'm relatively new to it, so I can't, I'm not an expert, but from what I've been able to gather, yeah, apparently this sort of thing, <laughs> this sort of thing happens fairly often. You have a grandfather or whatever, grandmother who has dalliances outside for marriages. And so you have tons of kids and grandkids and great grandkids floating around who are part of a family, but born over wrong side of tracks, as it were. But unlike um, in European countries, or I'd say Western countries, or Western countries, where it can be, like, where people can really get upset about it, as well as Latin American countries, it's just, oh, okay, it happened. But, you know, family is family. It feels like that, no matter where you're from, as long as you're part of a region, part of um, some kind of lineage, you're part of a family. Everyone's
0: a cousin. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, that's yeah, that's endearing to hear because that resonates with me. That the circumstances of how you got here is not more important than you got here, and that we're related. Yeah, like I, yeah, that, I just love that. As you, I guess, maneuver through what is possible in reunion and learning more to your story. What was your cousin able to provide, if anything, to answer maybe some of your questions?
1: She was able to, she, uh, my husband and I joke, that she single-handedly has been a recruiting force for 23andMe <laughs> because she keeps going through, she knows her, our family tree almost by heart. Um, and it's a huge, huge tree that, that crisscrosses and whatever, it's crazy. But she's methodically through the DNA testing I've done with her and a few other her family members who've done it. She's been able to kind of track potential closer relatives. She's been trying to look for aunts and uncles, or even better, my actual parents. It's been very difficult so far, but she's been nonstop about contacting whoever she thinks is a potential, I not want to say suspect, but potential person who might have a closer relationship with me. She's like, okay, you do a test, you do a test, <laughs> you do a test. But kindly, of course, she's like, well, are, you, are you, you know, willing to? And right. So all of them have been like, yeah, we don't care. Like, you know, so we just, I ship the kit to Miami. It gets down, sent to Venezuela and then bumped back to Miami and then sent to the facility for testing. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think there's like eight or nine or 10 of us now at this point on 23 and me because she was like, can you please test? And that way it will help us figure out who Sophie's parents are. And she's been amazing with that. She really has like, even if people we were kind of worried would react not so well, Hasn't been a problem. She'd call and she's like, "Hey, so here's this girl. She's called Sophie, and we don't know where where she's from. Except, well, we know where she's from, but uh, we don't know who her parents are, and we need help. And it's just been smooth,
0: right? (laughs) And she's still in Venezuela, right?
1: No, she's actually in Canada.
0: Oh, (laughs) okay.
1: Like twenty years ago.
0: Okay. Now, have you been back to Venezuela?
1: Not since I was five or six it's been a long long time and knowing that i have all these cousins down there now and whatever it's like they're like you know you have a a house open to you if if you ever come we'll we'll show you these beaches and these shops and these like we have a whole like little vacation already planned out right (laughs) so i can't wait that's
0: exciting and and i i heard you say earlier that you're still learning the culture of course right because you weren't exposed to it growing Mm -hmm. up and so now you're probably as many interracial transracial adoptees have described to me, you're playing catch up in a sense. Do you find that experience to be fulfilling as you learn more about the Venezuelan culture?
1: Yeah, it's fulfilling and it's, it, it's not bitter, but it's, it saddens me a little bit at the same time. Cause I'm like, of course, yeah, I have a rest of my life to catch up you know I'm, I'm not even 30 yet I have time but at the same time or one my my cousin who contacted me who started this whole thing has terminal cancer mm. um, so that also has me really really, really sad yeah um, so we're just trying to enjoy the time that we have with her so there's that too going back to the culture thing yeah it's, it's something I know I will catch up on eventually but it makes me sad because I'm like you know my parents my adopted parents spent like 30 years in Venezuela and enjoyed all it had to offer the people and the culture and the music and everything else. Um, and then we moved to the U.S. I, I, I think I remember like just speaking and hearing Spanish very young. And then we moved to the, to the U.S. and all of a sudden it was like no more Spanish, mm. uh, just French at home, English in school. And the only Spanish I was really exposed to was when friends would come sometimes, but that was every few years. And then I reconnected with Spanish in like middle and high school, but it was like Spanish from Spain, so it was different. And it's just not the same. It's just very academic, and I always felt kind of out of sync with with that. And I felt ashamed because I knew I was born in Venezuela, but you know, and of course, you know, my, my mom would be like, "Oh yeah, Venezuela was great, but you know, they're just so lazy over there, and you know, they react act friendly and stuff, but if you're flaky, you know, it was never like just positive. She didn't. She never had a well, she never had a positive thing to say about anybody, but. Hearing her talk about my country, my birth country, like that and stuff, was a bit like, oh, okay, well, maybe, maybe it's not a good thing being Venezuelan and stuff." And even like on uh, questionnaires and stuff for medical records or for school, for like, you know, what racial ethnicity are you? She was always like, "Oh, put Caucasian," and I was like, "Um, technically, I, I mean, yes, I'm white, but I'm Latino." And there's a choice right there. It's looking at me right in the face. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, no, 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 you're not, you're not, you're, you're you're white. I'm like, why, why am I white? He's like, because you are, and you're ours. And even if you put your Latino, people are gonna judge you.
0: Oh my goodness, that's heartbreaking to hear. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. She seemed like she was stuck in her trauma, especially when you share eight miscarriages. And you know, a lot of times I, I picture adoptive parents because they can't conceive. We become as adoptees this alternative choice that maybe they haven't dealt with what's really going on in being unable to conceive a child, you know, have a child naturally. Yeah, that that's, that's really hard uh, on adoptees when adoptive parents are stuck in their trauma. And I don't know, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist by no means, but just the way she was treating you, it just feels like yeah, that that's just really awful to treat a, a child that way. To say you you know you're white when when they aren't, and I've heard other adoptees describe the very thing. You're ours, so just identify with us as white people.
1: I was going to ask you if um, in your experience, because for me also, she would say um, you know never talk about your adoption to anybody. We, we you know people will judge you too i was always saying that people will judge you i'm like why would people judge me for being adopted it's not like I was like hey come adopt me you know it just happened
0: right but it, yeah. was like, it was
1: supposed to be a big secret and even if like close close family members and stuff she didn't tell them until very late and i actually even she actually alienated some friends for a while because they're like you have to tell sophie i was like five or six seven years old like, you're gonna have to tell her like soon she was like oh it's none of your business what, what i do what i tell her what and, so she kind of, she was so worried they'd tell me that she kept them away for a while. Hmm. Um, and I wonder if that's common or if, or if other adoptees have the same experience or not.
0: Yeah, I think plenty of adoptees that I've talked to have that same experience. And even myself, I'm I'm same race, domestic adoptee. However, I wasn't to talk about it. It wasn't to, to be something that I should expose outside of the home. Like, Like, why would I want to do that was kind of how it was put. You know, you're you're ours and you belong to this family. We love you. And that's like all that matters. And you don't have to be announcing that you're adopted. And I'm thinking, well, that's a part of my identity. Just like being black, just like being female. Like, why wouldn't I have discussions with other people about these things I identify with? But I think that especially my mother and father's generation, it was, there was shame, you know, probably for them not being able to conceive and also shame of just the fact that this young person, little, as little people, as little adopted people, that somehow we had it bad because we weren't able to stay with our biological Mother or parents or family, yeah, it was a lot of shame. And when I think of secrecy and being silenced, it contains quite a bit of of shame. Yeah, shame about it. Yeah, that's quite common not to talk about it. We're clean slates when we go into these new homes and just start from there. Even though, like, I was two years old when I was adopted. So like I, you know, my first two years are pretty important to me. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I had a name. I had, you know, I had, yeah, a lot of things were already in place. So I'm definitely not a clean slate when I go to this new home. I think things are changing. However, slowly they are changing because we as adoptees are coming forward and we're speaking out and we're sharing you know our stories and the effect it it has had on us the things that people have said the harmful things like what you have shared that your adoptive mom would say like that resonates with a lot of people a lot of adoptees have had to endure that
1: yeah it's terrible even like um I've heard it, it happens with domestic adoptions too, which is crazy. But in my case as well, I think I mentioned in an earlier conversation, uh, the whole rigmarole of trying to get my, my birth papers uh, has been a four-year journey of just obstacles and corruption and everything else. And that's because my adopted parents never gave me my stuff. I didn't even know you had a file as an adoptee. I just, it never dawned on me. And thank God I had a family friend who was like, you know... Your, your adoption is kind of sus- suspect. <laughs> you really should look into it and at least have your papers. It's your birthright. It's your papers. You may as well have them. I was like, okay, thinking it was going to be a very easy process. It has not. I mean, I have my French papers, but as, as I've learned, they're, they're a transcription. They're not actual. Uh, what, I, what I learned is that my parents did a, a domestic adoption in Venezuela and then transcribed it to the French embassy or whatever. So it wasn't a technically an international adoption. It was a domestic. But the amount of like missing paperwork and, and missing information and that sort of stuff. And, of course, I'm working on zero information. I don't know the name of the, my birth parents. I don't know my own birth name. I don't know uh, what agency I was in. I, I finally do know the name of the hospital I was born in, Thanks to my lawyer. I actually had to get a lawyer to help. Mm. Uh, and we only got so far, but we at least got bad information. <laughs> I have my Venezuelan birth certificate, but after adoption, which is crazy. <clears throat> That's something I've been learning too. The amount of paperwork that we we get issued as adoptees that are kind of falsified and modified when you think about it mm-hmm. is insane. So we're a minute where I I actually ended up emailing the French embassy and a French uh, adoption agency that oversees like international adoptions and stuff. I emailed them and I told them everything we'd done, all the searching. All the ridiculous fees we've been quoted for accessing my own paperwork and stuff. Lack of response from my adopted parents, because I tried through a lawyer emailing them and sending letters and saying, you know, by law, you're kind of required to submit the paperwork to give me my paperwork. So if you have anything, even if it's just like a date or a name or whatever, it would be very helpful. I've gotten nothing, (laughs) not even a single response. So I told that to the French organization. I told all of that. And I said, can you please help? (laughs) Please. Can you please help? we're like, uh, oh my goodness, we're really sorry to hear that. Um, obviously, we don't have your paperwork with us because the parents didn't do it in international adoption. So we're going to send a letter to the Venezuelan organizations through official means and see if they can give me access finally to my own stuff.
0: Mm.
1: Then, you know, it's just crazy. It's been four years of this and I'm tired of it.
0: <laughs> Thank you for sharing that because that is often the case in the U.S. as well, getting a hold of documents and paperwork. I know the adoption agency that handled my case is still not given to me. Like they made a summary of it uh, on two occasions, but the actual file, they couldn't just hand over to me or wouldn't. And I'm actually checking into Illinois law about that because it's my understanding that they are supposed to hand it over to me. I recently learned that. But yeah, these documents about us, are kept from us, and it just makes absolutely no sense. And I wanted to go back to something you said. Your parents lived in Venezuela for thirty years before yeah. they adopted you. Yeah. Okay. What? Why were they there? I'm just curious.
1: Um, I think my mom went there first. Uh, she was tired of living in France for whatever reason. Okay. And she ran off to become a model. I mean, I say that, but that's a version she told me. But now that I have talked with her sister, my aunt. I recently just reconnected to, uh, that was also a case of missed, missed uh, opportunities. Cause like I said before, my mom lied about everybody and everything. And so I thought her, her sister was this horrible person and she's not, she's just been terribly abused actually. Like I have. Um, so anyway, we connected and, and her sister was telling me, yeah, she went to Venezuela when she was very young, but ended up like, again, like didn't learn the language until very late, kind of mooched off everybody she could and stuff until, her sister came down with her and helped her out, helped her find a job and whatever.
0: So, Sophie, I know that you reached out to me, which I was happy to hear from you, wanting to share your story on the podcast and kind of told me how you found me through a Facebook group. Would you like to talk about being better connected to the community and, and what that has meant for you?
1: Sure. So, yeah, I don't I'm not even quite sure was advice I followed exactly to do that it might have been my lawyer actually who suggested I I find my community, as it were, just for moral support because I think she could tell I was totally getting disheartened and a bit bitter about the whole process. Sure. I was searching for my records. And she was like, yeah, you know, find people who maybe have been through the same stuff you have or something like that. So I looked on Facebook and was amazed by the amount of groups and stuff that existed and like very specific groups. Like I have um, adoptees who cut ties Uh, I have an international adoptees group and just different kinds, uh, different niches. And so far, all have been amazing because I'm like, oh, wow, for a first time in a very long time, I feel like that part of myself has a voice. I have seen other people who've had very similar experiences to me or slightly different, but there are still like similar themes that link us together. I mean, yes, for the most part, I've been a little amazed, not in a good way, but how many adoptees have had a really terrible time with it but for adopted family and, or for birth family as well, which thankfully I don't have that. There's also been, you know, adoptees have had wonderful experiences and stuff. And that has been heartwarming to read as well. It's like, oh, okay, thank God. I know I got the sucky end of a lollipop, but not everybody did. And it's it's good to see those positive stories as well. Yeah. There's really been like a crash course in like, oh, wow, like, yeah, I'm not alone.
0: (laughs) For sure. When I hear of adoptees that had really good experiences. And and by that, I mean, they had supportive adoptive parents. If they wanted to search, they would be there to support them and they could talk about their status as an adopted person. The openness by adoptive parents, when I hear that, I'm like, yeah, like that wasn't my experience, but I'm, I'm happy to know that there are adoptees that did have certain situations that I think are just a better environment for us as adopted people. Yeah, I feel good about it too, hearing those, like all of the stories, right? They all matter so much. And we can encourage each other to stay the course through the difficulties or just because of things that have happened that probably shouldn't have happened. And yeah, I like to hear from everybody. So I agree with you there. And and so would you say there have been any challenges since you've been better connected?
1: Not really. I mean, they're actually sort of, but not really. I'm going to try (laughs) and clarify. So, most of the groups I'm in and stuff like yeah, people are very honest and and raw, and sometimes in their experiences, and most of them, their pain and that sort of thing. And sometimes I think because people are opening up so much about very sometimes traumatic experiences, they're a bit more sensitive. And so, if somebody says, like, word something wrong, or it's like, yeah, but I, you know, I did this and I did that. Almost like not invalidating your experience, but kind of using it as a, oh, well, this worked out for me, but obviously it won't work for everybody. Then it can get a little tense, but I, I try to like avoid the drama and step back. I don't get involved. I just read on. I'm like, I hope these guys can just get together because we're all in the same boat. Um, <laughs> right. We're all in the same boat. Really, of all people, we really shouldn't be biting at each other.
0: Exactly. Um, at
1: each other.
0: <laughs> but that's the trauma, <laughs> so right? Run. That's That is yeah. the trauma. Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I'm able to kind of step back. I've always been pretty good about stepping up. The minute I see drama, I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I think it's yeah, it's a coping mechanism. But I think um, what has been challenging is uh, some of the groups have adoptees, but also like adopters, uh, people who want to adopt. And I and I get that on social media. I mean, some context is lost when you just have text. It just really grates me when I when I see adopters being like, oh, well, we want to adopt for whatever reason. And they're like, um, I want to adopt this kid from this country, or you know, I want a girl, or like just, it, it sounds really like you're shopping for f- an animal or food or something. And some of them at least, you know, they say, oh, but we want to preserve, you know, that child's culture, or how do I blend our culture and theirs? Okay, I'm like, okay, thank God, we're actually thinking about it and not just buying sorry to say it like that buying or getting a child just to suit their own needs mm-hmm. or at least thinking about it but too often yeah i see posts from adopters who are like i don't know really what a kid so you know what should i do and, so, and some of them really are like oh do i have to go for this agency do i have to go for this organization and i'm like what's wrong with you right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you were speaking directly to adoptive parents like two thousand in the room will say and that's a lot right what would you say to them based on your lived experience?
1: I'd say being an adopter is an incredibly, I'd say almost sacred responsibility. It's a mission you have to step into with your eyes wide open. You can't adopt a child and expect it to be the solution to whatever problems you're dealing with, especially if it's um, in relationship to infertility or stuff like that. Like I get that for some people having a child is like the, the most important, the most primordial thing, but. Like we were talking about earlier, if you haven't shouldered past your own trauma of that loss, um, if you haven't like really taken a hard look at yourself and be like, am I really fit to be a parent? Actually, right? <laughs> uh, to any any kid, bio, adopted, whatever. Yeah, I think yeah. My, my message would be yeah. Don't adopt a child as a solution. Think of that child as a human being who will be a part of your family, but won't at the same time for obvious reasons. When it's and it's natural. I think we're we're more enriched for it. We have legacies from. Two different worlds, two different cultures, but yeah, don't don't treat the child like like they're gonna be, they're gonna look like you, they're gonna want to do the same things as you. We're our own human beings. I mean, that's that's what I would say.
0: That's well stated. <laughs> Thank you for that. And I know that you are a part of international adoptee advocacy group. You want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Why did I join that? Oh yeah, because. I was talking about um, the whole frustration of my birth records, and somebody suggested you probably want to head over to that group. They have <laughs> more experience dealing with that stuff. So I did and, and joined. And while I haven't been able to help in my case specifically, it's been really incredible seeing the, all the work that the administrator has done. Like she's part of, um, I think she's Vietnamese, adopted into Australia, and she's done so much and. I think she told me she spent like 20 years looking for her records and that sort of thing, and it's only recently she's been able to find out like more about her birth family, learn her birth name. She's been able to change her name. She's been able to do lots of things, and she advocates for all of us all around the globe. So she works with all these people who are part of like important adoption agencies, and also like psychologists and writers and even some politicians and stuff. It's, it's a really diverse group, and she constantly posts articles about like legal recourses that people have had to use or laws that are being worked on. And most of them are stories about, yeah, like uh, countries like India or Colombia or stuff who had like lots of illegal adoptions and, and birth families who were torn apart and whatever. But sometimes they have happy endings and I like those. Every adoptee spent, you know, years searching for their birth families. that were stolen at birth or whatever, or kidnapped or whatever. And, and they finally find their birth family again. It's like... But then it's like, you know, it's, it's a mixed bag. It's like, yes, thank God they got back together. We were able to find their answers. But holy shit, it's amazing that these, these countries let this illegal stuff, this awful stuff, this traumatic stuff happen and just didn't care. Mm-hmm. That makes me mad.
0: Right. Well, I'm happy to hear you. You're a part of that. What you described that she's doing is amazing. That's great. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. It sounds like, yeah, like hard work. As we prepare to wrap up, I know you are a writer. You have a degree in creative writing. Is there anything you want to share that you've written?
1: Oh, sh- uh, sure. So yeah, in the past, I've written a few. I've written a few books now. I've written poetry, and like for my books, I tend to focus on like fantasy and sci-fi. It's more fun. <laughs> <laughs> for a poetry, yeah. <laughs> for a poetry, I tend to do like nature inspired. You know, mm. like I said before, I wake up at five to be able to write without being yelled at, and I see like the moon, you know, starting to set. The moon can set um, mm-hmm. past my window, and I just stare at it and feel just so calm and it was silent. And it was beautiful. And It was just me and the moon. So I wrote a lot of poems about the moon. Oh, <laughs> um, I love that. But when I'm not writing poems, thank you. And I'm not writing poems about the moon at the beginning, especially when I escaped back in 2013, when I had to escape from my house through the window. And I wrote a lot of poems about healing and, and recovery and feelings about what I'd gone through. One of my poems is called How Do You Want Me To Be Silent? And it's going to be part of an anthology called Letters I'll Never Send.
0: Hmm. And that
1: really I feel encapsulates like so much of what I felt like from 10 to 19, almost 20 years old when I left.
0: Whenever you're ready.
1: Okay, so it's called How Do You Want Me To Be Silent? mother you tell me to be silent but you do not tell me how my mouth is shut but there are layers of silence that speak as stratified fossils waiting for eons to be discovered my mouth is shut because you do not want to hear my pain hear the inflection in my voice hear my questioning of your dubious authority mother you do not want insolence you say so i will be silent would you have me silent as a grave Your words will bury me in a coffin of your virulent contempt. Then my silence would give consent. Would you have me silent as the dead? I am weary and dead from your torture of my character, my principles which you transform into crimes. To you, my silence is golden, but to me it is a hush of defiance. You recognize it, so you pull my hair, beat your fists on my arms, spit it in my face as you scream about insolence. I am still silent, but my eyes cannot be mute. I could demand my body to be silent, arms limp, head at rest, eyes downcast, back straight. My silence would read as acquiescence. I could demand my mouth to be less turned down. I could demand my facial muscles to not be tense. I could demand my jaw to not be clenched. I could demand my hands to not be curled, nails digging in my palms. Every limb could shed and dawn a silence subtleties that will never satisfy you anyway. So I ask again, how do you want me to be silent so you can truly love me? You have never answered me.
0: How do you want me to be silent? Wow, that is a beautiful piece. And I just really appreciate you sharing it with all of us.
1: My pleasure. (laughs) I think we all feel silenced at some point or another. Oh my goodness, uh, absolutely.
0: that so resonates with me. Cause I, I even have a chapter in my memoir about silence. Hmm. I'm just happy that we had this time together with this seven hour difference, like technology is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in closing, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to
1: share? I don't think so. <laughs> I think we went through through everything pretty much that needed to be said. I didn't really want to focus on the abuse too much in this episode. We'll see the adoption stuff.
0: Yes. Um, I think
1: most people are about the abuse by this point.
0: <laughs> yes. But the
1: adoption part, is, it's amazingly liberating to be able to talk about it without feeling like I'm bringing shame to the family or whatever. It's really empowering. I
0: appreciate everything you shared. I mean, when we think about, you know, our journeys as we learn more information, especially like the whole DNA piece, when we take the test and then we do have a connection, it's like we kind of light up and and we get more curious and excited. And we just, I think through connecting with the community, we get just really encouraged, you know, because it is, I think, a lifelong journey of, learning more and making connections. And many of the connections we make are in the community as we listen to other people's stories. They help us. I still believe that storytelling is healing for the listener and the storyteller. So I just appreciate you taking this time to trust me with your story. And yeah, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. It's been great.
1: Thank you. Likewise. Likewise. Thank you for having me and listening and bringing your own your own opinions and, and life experience to it, too.
0: When I fellowship with Sophie via Zoom or emails, we get insights together, laugh and enjoy learning from each other. She's a question asker like me and it's most enjoyable to be able to take her perspectives and add them to mine. We both agree that hearing from other adoptees with different experiences, better experiences even, is just as important to us and life-giving to know they didn't suffer. I loved hearing the reception she received from her biological cousin when they made a DNA match. She feels a sense of belonging as she continues to navigate reunion with her first family. I imagine that the Venezuelan culture lovingly embraces its own, no matter how or why the separation from one another happened in the past. Sophie's talent as a writer, singer, songwriter, and overall creative artist is undeniable and seems to have been a saving grace from a turbulent childhood. I've heard many other adoptees share that the arts called to them and saved their life. It is heartbreaking to learn about an adoptee's experience being filled with abuse. At the same time, I often discover from them that they have figured out ways to move through the pain of it all and go on to live full and productive lives early in life. I think Sophie has long since started down that path of healing from the things that happened to her. I recall the day as though it were yesterday when I read Sophie's beautiful email expressing an interest in connecting with me for the purpose of being a guest on my podcast. It was a reminder of why I do what I do and it being some of the most meaningful work I've ever done. I can't say it enough that adoptees from all over the world want to be seen and given a safe space to undertake the emotional labor of sharing a part of what it means, to be an adoptee. Thank you, Sophie, for having this conversation with me. I appreciate your youthfulness and willingness to share your perspectives. I have a strong feeling that we will be exchanging emails or getting on Zoom to chat about all sorts of things for a long time. We've already started to explore other areas of interest that we believe will be more tools for our growth as adoptees who never Stop being adopted. If you're an adoptee and would like to share your adoption journey, visit JenniferDianeGhostin.com. If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow and or give, hopefully, a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I trust you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it because word of mouth is still the very best way for the show to grow. Thank you for being here.